Welcome to the Walk Worthy Podcast, a podcast by Hespler Baptist Church, located in Cambridge, Ontario. Our local church exists to make disciples who walk worthy of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, with the help of the Holy Spirit, to the glory of God the Father. We hope and pray that this is an encouragement to you and to anyone else you share this with. In and through the Lord Jesus Christ, and what a delight it is to be led to worship and to sing of his great love. Thank you, Julia, for selecting songs that captured the theme that we will continue to hear, one of the themes we will continue to hear as we continue in worship with this sermon portion of our service. Have you ever wondered how much you say in the course of a given day? Researchers have tried to answer that question, and while for many reasons the answer may vary, on average, the number of words that each individual person speaks in a day is in the thousands. Some put the number on the lower end at around 7,000. Others put the number on the higher end at around fifteen to 16,000 words a day. But those are, the only, those are only the words that we speak out loud. If we were to count the internal conversations that we're constantly having with ourselves, that number would be far higher. And we are always talking to ourselves, are we not? Right now, only one voice can be heard in the room, but there is lots being said that cannot. Some might be asking themselves whether or not it will be worth listening for the next 40 minutes. Some of you maybe new here this morning, wondering whether or not what I should, I'm about to say should be trusted. Some of you may not be Christians and your inner skeptic is on high alert, perhaps doubting, perhaps mocking, perhaps conflicted. Many of you are Christians and you might have a debate with your inner lawyer this morning based on ways you might be convicted over the course of the sermon. And then there will be times when we'll distract ourselves with an inner chat that is completely irrelevant to everything else that's going on around of us. On a human level, one of the challenges for a preacher is to try to interrupt some 300 conversations that are going on while the sound of my voice is being heard. We're always talking inwardly even if we're not talking outwardly, and it is so constant that we don't always notice that it is happening. Now, while this is always the case, and while I'm always seeking to interrupt that inner conversation with the truth of God's Word every time I get up here, I'm highlighting these private, personal conversations this morning. Why? Because I want to talk to you about how you talk to yourself. I want you to pay attention to what you're saying to yourself. I want you to change what you're saying to yourself. I want you to understand the importance of speaking to your own soul, of taking your soul by the hands or putting your hands on either side of the face of your soul like a parent would a small child when they really want to get their attention. 
based on the psalm that we are about to read, what we say or don't say to ourselves has enormous influence on the course of our lives. In the constant internal conversations that we're having, we're always talking ourselves into or out of certain courses of action. This morning, I want us to see how we talk ourselves into worshiping God which is the reason for our very existence and the source of true and everlasting joy. George Mueller once wrote these words that come to my mind quite often, although not nearly as often as I would like. He said this, The first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day is to have my soul happy in the Lord. Can you imagine what difference this would make if every day we knew how to talk to our souls so that they were glad in God as we worshipped Him? Can you imagine what difference this would make in the lives of others? If every day we knew how to talk to our own souls so that they were glad in God as we worshipped Him? That's what the psalm we're about to read teaches us to do. When we talk ourselves into worshiping Yahweh, we will want to talk everyone else into worshiping Him as well. When we talk ourselves into worshiping Yahweh, we will want to talk everyone else into worshiping Him as well. So turn with me to Psalm 103, which we will read after we pray. Psalm 103. We're doing a short series in the Psalms right now, and in the background, there's preparations being made for a sermon series in the book of Exodus to begin when I get home from Australia, when I'll be visiting family in the month of February. So in between sort of sermon series, we're going to revisit the Psalms from time to time just so we can hear these words that we can use to pray and sing when we're mad and bad and sad and glad. So Psalm 103 is where we are this morning. I chose this psalm just because I wanted to, so here we are. Psalm 103, let me pray and I will read the psalm and we'll work our way through. Lord, your word is like gold that has been purified seven times over. There is nothing like it. If all of the books that human beings have ever written were to be burned, it would be a less loss than should one of your pages of Scripture be lost to us. And I pray you would help us to see the treasure that we have, for we are hearing you speak to us as we read your word this morning. And so by your Spirit, Lord, I pray that you would interrupt every conversation that is being had on the inside. You know exactly what is being said. I do not, yet your spirit is able to take the truth of your word and to direct it to every heart and mind, and so give ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts to understand what you would say to us as individuals and a church this morning, that we might indeed fulfill the joyful reason for why it is we are here, which is to make much of you. And so we ask this in Jesus' name, and all of God's people say, Amen. Psalm 103, beginning 
before verse 1, we don't want to omit these words, of David, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless Yahweh, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made his way known to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. Yahweh is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so Yahweh shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes, flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. Yahweh has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. Bless Yahweh, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless Yahweh, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless Yahweh, all his works, in all places of his dominion. Bless Yahweh, O my soul. This again, brothers and sisters, is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Unlike some psalms, and like other psalms, there is very little context given for this one beyond two words of David. As has been pointed out by another, Psalms 100 to 103 form a Davidic unit, and the opening words of Psalm 103 seem to respond to the closing words of Psalm 102. If you just look back there to the final verse, you will see it says, The children of your servant shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. And someone writes, After the hope for the appointed day of favor, David commands his own soul to bless Yahweh. And to bless, which occurs six times in the psalm, is very simply to adore with bended knee. Someone has captured it this way. David calls on his own soul to borrow its metaphorical knee in adoration of Yahweh. The situation for doing so, it's not given. Although there is a good case to be made for this psalm being used in the, the life of the people of Israel as a, in the Thanksgiving liturgy, maybe a soloist would get up and sing this psalm to stimulate everyone who hears it to praise Yahweh. When would be a good time for this? Anytime. Every time. If you're sad, you say to your soul, bless Yahweh. If you're in the aftermath of sin and feeling guilt and shame, you say to your soul, bless Yahweh. 
You're getting up in the morning and you're getting ready for school. Young man, young woman would be a good time for you to say to your soul, bless Yahweh. The mornings are difficult for you because you're older in age and the joints don't get moving as quickly as you would like. That would be a good time for you to say to your soul, bless Yahweh. Any occasion is a fitting occasion to take a hold of ourselves, to look our souls in the eyes, and to self-exhort ourselves to praise Yahweh. But how do we do this? How do we talk ourselves, our slow-minded, hard-hearted, often cold-hearted selves into blessing, adoring, worshiping, praising Yahweh, and not just half-heartedly, but with all of our heart and our soul and our mind and our strength. David isn't talking here about checking the church attendance box or just going through the motions of the daily Bible reading assignment or a token prayer. He's talking about mustering every fiber of his being in adoration of Yahweh. Well, the answer for how we do so is, of course, in the text. When we talk ourselves into praising Yahweh, we want to talk others into praising Yahweh also, and we talk ourselves into praising Yahweh, first and foremost, by recounting Yahweh's benefits to yourself. A lot of people in the room either are or have been on social media, and if you've, if you've been on social media for any length of time, you will know that the platforms will start reminding you of pictures or of memories or events that you have posted in the past. Six years ago today, three years ago today, ten years ago today. That's what David does here for his soul. He gives himself reminders of what Yahweh has done for himself in the past. We talk ourselves into praising Yahweh with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength by recounting Yahweh's benefits to yourself that's how he begins. Bless Yahweh, O my soul, all that is within me, that is all my inner parts. Again, bless his holy name. Again, bless Yahweh, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Be not content with recounting just some of what Yahweh has done for you, for recounting in part will result only in worship in part. But when we make an effort to be as exhaustive as we can, surely our adoration will soar to heights such as it never has before. And note how David gets specific on all of Yahweh's benefits with five participles, five who's in verses 3 through 5. He begins to speak about Yahweh's benefits and he says, Who forgives all your iniquity? Do you see that word all there again? It would take a long time for me to list my many sins. The sins that I committed when I was spiritually dead before becoming a Christian. The sins that I've committed since becoming a Christian. My sins of omission where I failed to do what I've ought to done. My sins of commission where I did what I ought not to have done. I've sinned in my head. I've sinned in my heart. I've sinned with my hands. I've sinned with my words. So of you, if we say we have not sinned, well, we make it out as though God is a liar because he says that we have and all his words are, tr are true. Now, if you're anything like me, you can recall past sin readily enough, especially those sins that may cause the most shame, the most guilt, 
Perhaps those sins that cause the most hurt to others. Or those sins that give us the most fear at others ever finding them out. As those come to mind, hear again what David says to his own soul. Hear what the psalm compels us to say to our own souls. Bless Yahweh, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all. You hear that, church? It's all of them. It is every single one, brother or sister. There is not a sin that you could come up here and disclose to me, and I would say, God will not forgive you of that sin. He forgives us all, all, all our iniquity. And that is reason enough to bless his holy name forever and ever. But there's more. David goes on, who heals all your diseases. Some understand this because it is parallel to iniquity to mean the sickness of sin. Sin, which brings death, is the great malady of the human race and which only God in Christ is capable of remedying. Yet disease and sin are no doubt related. And others would understand David to be referring to the physical in this phrase. This phrase. Diseases, sicknesses, illnesses would not exist were it not for the curse of sin. They will not exist in the new heavens and the new earth. During Jesus' earthly ministry, he cured scores of people as an indicator, yes, of his authority to forgive sin, but also as an indication of the holistic healing that he brings of what the fullness of life will be like in the fullness of the kingdom of God. Every pang, every pain, every disorder, every diagnosis should drive us to the hope of the great physicians appearing, and in the meantime, we appeal to him for mercy. For isn't he the one that we ultimately credit for every recovery we've ever experienced? Think of all the times that you have been sick in your life, whether temporarily and minor or long-term and serious. Every improvement in health, every remission from cancer, every time we walk out of the doors of a hospital, Every time we arise from a bed of sickness, every moment that sickness does not consume us to the grave. Who is it that we credit? Who is it that we ought to praise? It's him, isn't it? Every single instance of this was a mercy because if it were not for him in whom we live and move and have our being, we would have succumbed to further sickness and perhaps even to death itself, which is where David goes next. He talks his soul into praising Yahweh, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit. The grave is another word the psalmist often uses, which is a synonym of this word. Every deliverance from sin and every deliverance from sickness is redemption from the permanence of physical and spiritual death. And how many times God has acted to spare us from both of these will perhaps remain unknown to us on this side of eternity. Friends, we walk uh, not towards the edge of eternity, like we're coming closer and closer to the edge of a cliff. You could think of it that way, I suppose, but rather we walk along the edge of the precipice of eternity. And at any moment, we could go over. Slip on the ice, tumble down the stairs, a failure to check a blind spot before a lane change. We are on the brink 
all the time. The control we think we have over our lives is an illusion. God is sovereign over our days. We are alive because he wants us to be, because he preserves and protects, and for this we should praise him. Even more significantly is God's delivering us from the pit in his long suffering towards us when we were outside of Christ. For the first 17 years of my life, had I tumbled over the edge of the precipice of eternity at any point, I would have been ushered justly into eternal conscious punishment of an eternity knowing nothing else but the judgment of God because of my sin against him. I would have justly gone to the place of outer darkness to spend eternity separated from God in his love. I talked with a church member this week. He recounted their desire to take their own life as a teenager before they became a Christian and who praises God that the means and opportunity were not available because if they had succeeded, they would have ushered themselves into a Christless eternity. He redeems our life from the grave and from the grave without Jesus where there is no hope. But with him, there is the hope of resurrection in our union with him who has conquered both sin and death. And instead of this, as David goes on, God has crowned you with steadfast love and mercy. Remember that David is a king. Yet the adornment that he is most enamored with is the loyal, faithful, unending love of Yahweh with the grace that God that is undeservedly being lavished on a man who knows that he was a sinner from birth, if we are to take Psalm 51 seriously. And rather than wrath, God delights over and even sings over you. Rather than judgment in Christ, you have received mercy, and surely this is good that rejuvenates and restores our soul, as David indicates in verse 5. This is the fifth of the the participles that he gives of Yahweh's benefits, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. This may be a reference to the molting of this majestic bird. Someone told me this morning they were out on a trail yesterday and two bald eagles flew over their heads. The eagles lose old feathers. And they make way for new feathers, which enables the eagle to continue to soar as our souls do when we recount afresh all that Yahweh has done for us. This is how we talk ourselves into worshiping him, by recounting Yahweh's benefits to you and to me. That's how we do it. But this is not all. We talk ourselves into praising Yahweh by recounting Yahweh's mercy and grace to his people. There's a shift in the psalm from verse 5 to 6. 1 to 5 is personal, is you, me. And then verses 6 down through 14 is we, our, us. We look around to see the covenant community that we belong to, and we see it's not just me that Yahweh has benefited, but it's all of us. We talk ourselves into praising Yahweh by recounting Yahweh's mercy and grace to his people. Now, it's not difficult for me to imagine David as a king with the vantage point that he would have had, looking out over all of Jerusalem and marveling that God's people were even there. And what was required for that to be the case was extraordinary. By all rights, they should not have been there. 
Verse 6 brings to mind the oppression of the Israelites in Egypt that Yahweh worked righteousness and justice for. Exodus 2, 23 to 25 has these poignant words. Listen to what it says. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery. They cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And these beautiful words are in the text. God saw and God knew. He saw and he knew. He sees his covenant people. He knows what they are going through. And he acts for justice and righteousness on their behalf. Then verse 7 uh, recounts the Exodus itself and God's revelation to Moses in Exodus 34, which becomes the Old Testament anthem for who Yahweh is. There, you might remember, Yahweh descends in a cloud and he stands there with Moses and he proclaimed the name of Yahweh. Yahweh passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. If you want to understand how important that phrase is, that God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, just go search it for yourself and see how many times it appears in the Old Testament. It's everywhere. And literally, I wanted to, to read it this way, but uh, a, a brother said, I, I don't know if people would get what you're doing if you didn't explain it right away, but I want to give you the, original, the word picture in the original language. In verse 8 of Psalm 103, it literally says that God is long of nose. That's what it says. And you're thinking, wait, how do, we get, uh, how do we get slow to anger from long of nose? Well, Hebrew is a very picturesque language. And if you think of someone who has a big nose, they have big nostrils. And if someone who has wide nostrils gets really angry, it would take a lot for those nostrils to flare, wouldn't it? And people do that when they get angry. Their breath goes up and they're... <laughs> That's what they do. That's the picture. God has, a wide, has wide nostrils. He has a long nose. He doesn't get angry easily. Now, of course, we know that God doesn't have a body, that he's spirit, but it gives us this memorable image. And even when he does chide, even when he does discipline, such as after the golden calf incident, such as during the exile, it's not forever. He goes with his people. He brings them back from a foreign land into the land of promise. Verse 10, he does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Even in a new covenant context, we read our Lord Jesus' evaluation of a church like Laodicea and how they're lukewarm, and he says, I would spit you out of my mouth like, ugh. But he offers even to this church. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire 
so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. The wages of our sin is death, yet he paid that price so that we would not have to. Tying back to verse 3 for a moment, James Montgomery Boyce writes, The forgiveness of our sins is the greatest gift any of us can ever receive from God. And we can receive it only because God gave his son over to death on the cross to procure it for us. By all rights, David should not have been looking out and seeing the city of Jerusalem. By all rights, this church should not exist by all rights, there should not be a people for, his, for God's own possession. So how then is this all possible? The answer is in verses 11 through 14 as we read further of what God has done for his covenant people. For, David writes, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. Imagine a structure that reached to the moon. Now imagine a structure that would reach to the sun. Now imagine a structure that would reach to the other side of the Milky Way galaxy and how impossible it would be to stand at the bottom of that structure and look up and see the top. Such is the love of God that towers over his people. Love that we have sung about and and read about and heard about this morning. As many of you know, last July I took a short trip to visit my grandmother, which turned into a longer trip than I was anticipating. But if you could have seen me after I picked up the rental car at the airport and started driving to the city, the the town where I grew up, and saw that I had the windows down and the music was blaring and I was grinning like a Cheshire cat as I took in the familiar hills that were on my left as I was driving down the highway, trying not to crash because I was on the other side of the road and I just couldn't stop looking out the window. I missed those hills, that sense of being surrounded with something far bigger than myself. On one of the days I was there, I hiked with Tommy Miller, the 20 Schemes church planter that we support as a congregation, and we drove through the valley of Glencoe, and we were surrounded by some of the tallest peaks in the United Kingdom. There's a a difficult-to-explain sense of comfort that comes from being nestled in the midst of those. And maybe some of you know what I'm talking about, or you can think of a different place or setting where you felt the same. Those hills that were near my home, I could always see them. When I looked out my bedroom window, there they were. When I went to school, there they were. When I came home, they were still there. When we went to the grocery store, they were there. That's the sense God's love towering over us should bring. It's a constant monument that we can have in view no matter where we go or no matter what we're going through. David is is, is expressing how immovable and unshakable and constant and immeasurable it is for those who are members of his covenant people, as we would understand it today, 
as those who are members of the new covenant through faith in Christ and who lovingly revere him. A second picture David poetically paints of this love of God is in verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. To quote James Boyce again, since east and west are directions and not points on the compass, there is an infinite, unmeasurable distance between them, and this may be what David is thinking. Another brother has a different view, and he writes, no matter how many miles you think might lie between east and west, you cannot look two ways at once. If I look this way, let's just call this east because I'm up here and this may be backwards for you, but I don't really care. If this is east, what can I see? I can't see west. If I want to see west, I can't see east. Roy Clements writes, when God forgives us, he puts our sin and us on two different horizons. When he looks at our sin, he's no longer looking at us. And when he looks at us, he's no longer looking at our sin. To use the vocabulary of Paul, he has justified us. And this he does out of his mercy and his grace. As a father shows compassion to his children, verse 13, so Yahweh shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. You recall the tenderness and intimacy of the moment of the first man's creation? Moses tells us, The Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man, the man became a living creature. He knows what we're made of because he was there when he made us. He knows that we're clay. He knows our limitations. He knows how frail we are. He knows our capacities. And this isn't just true of Adam. This is true of every single one of us because he knit every single one of us together in our mother's wombs. He saw us that we existed before our mothers even knew that she was pregnant with us. He knows the limits of your strength. He knows the limits of your intelligence. He knows the limits of your endurance. He knows how far along the road of sanctification you are. He knows what temptations we're prone to sinfully indulge. He knows that we're finite. He made us that way. And he doesn't look down on us because of that. Quite the opposite. In love, he has compassion on us as his creatures, just like a dad does who piggybacks a small child who's just too tired to walk anymore. And if that dad is an imitator of our Father in heaven, and he ought to be, he's gracious towards those failings and frailties of a son and of a daughter. This is how God acts towards his people. This is why we're here. And David is telling all of this to his own soul. I love Jim Hamilton's summary of these verses 6 to 14. A mercy not merited, a love not measured, a forgiveness complete, and a Father who knows our form, who will not forsake us, reasons indeed to bless the Lord. This is how David talked himself into praising Yahweh, taking into account everything that Yahweh's done for him and everything that Yahweh has done for his people. 
And when we recount these, we'll be well on our way to talking ourselves into wholehearted worship. And David's still not done. We talk ourselves into praising Yahweh by recounting what he's done for me, by recounting what he's done for his people with his mercy and love and grace. And we talk ourselves into praising Yahweh by recounting his everlasting faithfulness compared to human brevity. We are a moment. God is forever. We talk ourselves into praising Yahweh by recounting his everlasting faithfulness compared to human brevity. This recognition of our being made from the dust of the clay, it prompts a reflection on David's part on the difference between us as creatures and Yahweh as creator and faithful covenant maker. Look at verse 15, which says, As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it. It's dry and can be very arid at times in Israel. And the, the flower is gone, and its place knows it no more. No one can say, oh, yeah, there was, uh, I, I have no idea where that flower was. It's just gone. When I drove here this morning, I didn't see any leaves on the trees. I didn't see any flowers in anyone's garden. They're gone. They're forgotten. The world moves on. The new flowers grow. We look forward to that. We don't, we don't uh, maul over the ones that have come because they've withered and perished and their petals have fallen to the ground and they're just forgotten. That's us. Compared to God, that's us. A mist, a vapor. We're here and we're gone. Maybe for a generation or two people will remember us. Now for the person who thinks this is all there is to life, that's a rather depressing sentiment, but not so for the one who trusts Yahweh, for he could not be any different than we are. Our lives on earth are quicker than a hiccup compared to eternity, but, verse 17, the steadfast love or the loyal love of Yahweh is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. And his righteousness to children's children, so it's generational, those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. We come and we go, but God's loyal love for his people does not, which I believe implicates this idea, this belief, this hope that there is more to life than just the here and now. How can God's everlasting love be on those who don't exist? Well, it can, and so in Christ we continue where there's resurrection hope that we have. From eternity past to eternity future, God has set his love upon those who are his. And there's not a millisecond or a generation when this has not been true, and we could say the same for what is to come in the new heavens and the new earth. Again, I quote a brother, Everlasting in both directions of the timeline, God's love for his people never fails. God's love and righteousness are forever, and they are for today. They always apply, even in this moment. There's the recipients of this love, you will know it as the psalm indicates, are those who fear him, to those who keep his covenant, to those who remember to do his commandments. I was helped by these comments. This does not mean that people earn God's mercy by obeying. Rather, those who have experienced God's mercy and felt his forgiveness will fear transgressing the covenant and keep it. Those who truly come to Christ to receive the soul rest and sin forgiveness he offers will be marked as Jesus describes in John 14. He says, if you love me, 
you will keep my commandments. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and he will come to him and make our home with him. And this, with the love that the psalmist says, is from everlasting to everlasting. And thanks be to God that this is the one who reigns, as verse 19 declares, Yahweh has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. Now, we could stop there. We just, if the psalm ended on that point, I don't think we would fault David. I think that's a pretty good end, David. What a way to rest. What a place to rest in the universal reign of Yahweh, of resting in the God who gives these benefits and who is merciful and gracious and loving and everlastingly faithful, and we just leave it at that. But David is not content to leave it at that. And neither should we be. There is none like Yahweh. And this one deserves to be rightly praised by everyone. And when we talk ourselves into praising Yahweh rightly, as David does here, what that will push us onto is to be compelled to talk to every, to talk every other creature, indeed the whole creation, to worship him as well. Do you know this, Yahweh? Have you heard of this Lord and God? There is none like him. You need to praise him. And so before the psalm ends with one final note to self, to bless Yahweh, O my soul, there are repeated exhortations to the heavens and the earth to join in also. Verse 20, bless Yahweh, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless Yahweh, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Here David addresses the heavenly court. And he uses four different terms of addressing angels, also calling them mighty ones, Yahweh's hosts, and his ministers. Now, I want to just give you a tiny little insight into how gutsy this is on David's part. In 2 Kings 19.35, an angel of Yahweh strikes down 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. One angel one night. In First Chronicles 21, the context being God's judgment on David taking the census, we read the following. And David lifted his eyes and saw the angel of Yahweh standing between earth and heaven, and in his hand a drawn sword stretched out over Jerusalem. Then David and the elders clothed in sackcloth fell upon their faces. A few verses later, we read, David could not go before the tabernacle to inquire of God, for he was afraid of the sword of the angel of Yahweh. When David calls them mighty ones, he's not kidding. These are powerful, supernatural beings. Marvel, move over for Yahweh's angels. And yet in this psalm, having stirred his own soul, by recounting Yahweh's doings personally and corporately, he is emboldened and he commands even the angels, you angels, make sure you worship Yahweh. He's emboldened to say to all of creation, to all creatures everywhere, to all men and women, worship Yahweh in all the places where he rules. And let me uh, think, where is that again? It's everywhere. 
You see, as our souls are stirred to worship Yahweh rightly, we will become exercised for all to worship him, which is what produces evangelism. It has been said evangelism exists because worship doesn't. I would say this psalm would support that. But evangelism will only exist among God's people when worship does. Only when we talk ourselves into worshiping Yahweh with all that we are will we be compelled to talk others into worshiping him as well. When we're so taken with what God has done for us in Christ, we will be far less concerned about what others might think of us when we tell them the gospel. We'll be so concerned with what others think of him. When our souls are enamored with God, we will be pushed beyond those evangelistic barriers that get in our way and those geographical borders that we are hesitant to cross because we will want to make Christ known for his sake and for the sake of those that we share with. And so if you're wondering how it is that we will stand tall and bold and clear in a culture that increasingly doesn't just want to push us to the margins, but doesn't think that we even should have a place. If you want to know how it is, you're going to talk to your coworkers about what the Bible teaches about God glorifying sexuality and all of these types of things. If you want to know how that happens, you talk yourself into praising Yahweh by recounting all of his benefits. And that will propel you forward. This psalm teaches us how to speak to our own soul so that this indeed is the case. Now to close, I would ask two questions that I found helpful that I simply wish to relay. The first is for you, brother, sister, for our church, is there any real praise in your heart to God? When Christian puts it bluntly, it is so easy to come to church out of habit It's so easy to repeat amen without ever really speaking to God. It's so easy to hear sermons without ever really listening to God. Spiritual lukewarmness is a common disease. All of us can fall prone to this. So note that David ends as he begins. He talks himself into praising Yahweh and is compelled to talk others into praising Yahweh as well, but it's not a one-and-done conversation. He ends as he begins by speaking once more to his own soul, which begins the process all over again. This is why I love George Mueller's resolve every day, brothers and sisters, every day. Let us talk ourselves into praising Yahweh. If there's any coldness in our hearts, if there's any temptation to sin, if there's any giving in to the temptation to sin, then it just reveals how constantly we need to speak to ourselves and interrupt the other conversations that we're having so that we grab the attention of our souls and we say, look at what God has done for you. Look at what God has done for us. That is how we talk ourselves into worshiping Yahweh and how we will be compelled to talk everyone else into it as well. The second question is for anyone here who is not a Christian. Does your soul share in these blessings? 
someone writes, at first glance, it might seem that David is speaking of blessings from God that are enjoyed by everybody. Since he's calling on the entire creation to praise God, but that is not actually so. The blessings he is speaking of are for those who fear him and those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his commands. And so David is asking us, have I experienced the forgiveness of sins? Have you experienced the forgiveness of sins? Have you experienced God redeeming your life from the pit, of crowning you with steadfast love and mercy? Have you been satisfied with the good things that God desires to give to us, the best of which being His Son? Have you discovered for yourself and do you truly know that Yahweh is merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love? Do you know this? Do you know this? If the answer is no, but you long for the answer to be yes, the place where you look is to the cross of Jesus Christ, which is the ultimate display of these realities and truths about God. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If you look to him, if you believe upon him, if you surrender to him, you will join those whose souls praise him and whose souls will be forever happy in him. And that is what we are going to express together now in our final song. So I'm going to invite John and Julia and the others to come and help us to express some words that are taken directly from the psalm in a song that we know, Bless the Lord, O my soul.